Hello, I'm Terry Schultz, and I am channeling Brussels, getting newsmakers, movers, and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble, and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And I'm both very proud and a bit sad to present this episode, as my guest is someone who's a worldwide legend. Many of my listeners will know him as well, Dr. Jamie Shea, NATO's communicator extraordinaire, who just may be the longest-serving NATO officer ever, having joined the Alliance in 1980. Jamie Shea is retiring. He doesn't want to, as he tells me, but he's turning 65 on September 11th and doesn't have a choice. He's now the Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges. As a former spokesman, he's been the face of NATO during some of the most critical times of the alliance. A couple of personal notes about Jamie and myself. I first interviewed him almost 20 years ago at the Washington Summit in 1999 and was immediately struck by how unflappable and friendly he was. We've been on plenty of panels together since where I've been critical of NATO. And while Jamie will disagree, he never takes offense, no matter the situation. And that's a rare quality. Most speakers get defensive if they don't like your questions or comments or conclusions. And I forgot to mention this to Jamie during my interview because I had so many things I wanted to talk to him about. But he's part of the reason this podcast exists. I was interviewing Jamie on the sidelines of NATO's Wales summits in 2014. When Atlantic Council Vice President Damon Wilson saw me, he asked what happens to the rest of my interviews when I use something like 10 seconds for a news story. I responded that, well, no one ever hears the rest of it. He said plenty of people would like to hear the whole interview, that he might be able to find some funding to underwrite such an effort. And thus, Channeling Brussels was born. But that's enough of me talking. Let's hear from Jamie Shea, some of his favorite stories, his successes, his worries for the future, and perhaps most useful, his recommendations to NATO for how to navigate today's marketplace of competing ideas and conflicting information. Here's Dr. Jamie Shea. Jamie Shea, legend of NATO, thank you for making time today. It's great to be here, Terry. Thanks for the opportunity. I will probably go backwards, not walking um, chronologically through your your history here. But let me ask you first, are you the longest-serving NATO official as far as we know? Well, I'm certainly uh, known as the dinosaur in residence, (laughs) which uh, shows that I've got a very long longevity in NATO. I'm not really sure if I'm the longest serving. But who else is is left? Well, there are all kinds of people uh, (laughs) uh, lurking still in the structures. I don't think there are any around who still remember being in Paris before 1967. But when I first joined NATO, there were a lot of those Paris nostalgics who had sort of still kept on their apartments in the hope that NATO would go back to Paris. Really? Never happened. There, There may be a few people who've been around longer than my nearly 39 years uh, because there are interpreters, translators who don't always come out of their offices very much, so you don't see them all the time. Unlike but you. Who, so, unlike myself, but uh, who, who could have been here longer than I. So I, I should be humble and not claim the title of the uh, <laughs> well, longest, in, longest in the two for residents of NATO HQ. But having started with trying to establish that fact, everyone who covers NATO, everyone who follows NATO knows you, and I'm really happy to get to to get to speak with you as you are sadly retiring. And we'll get to that when we walk back through the um, y- your timeline. But um, as you go, and you're always an optimist, so I'm not expecting to get a really newsworthy answer out of you, um, but uh, would you ever have expected in all of your years that you'd be leaving NATO at a time when people were actually questioning it again? 
Well, NATO, frankly, has always been questioned throughout its existence, almost from the word go. I mean, when the, the treaty was signed back in 1949, and it's going to be 70 years old next year, the band uh, at the State Department played uh, I've Got Plenty of Nothing by George Gershwin, and it ain't necessarily so. So that's hardly a great sort of vote of confidence, right, Terry, uh, in the future of the organisation. And you've got to also to remember that, you know, in the US back in the 40s, NATO was never designed to the last of 70 years. Many of the congressmen who were asked to sign up to the treaty believed that it would be 10 years because it was designed as a temporary support to Europe, which would then, of course, uh, strengthen after World War II, would unite and would be able to take care of its own defence. So the debate that we're having today was really there at the very beginning. And throughout the years, if you study your, your NATO history, there's always been lots of uh, uh, questioning uh, of, of the alliance and, and lots of, if you like, adjustments along the way in your tenure did it did it did you ever think that you would get to a point where where actually the United States is is questioning it as it is now well as I said right from the word go uh, you know the United States uh, believed that NATO would be a temporary affair uh, eventually by the way the Congress agreed for 20 years for the initial <laughs> treaty which was then in 1969 extended indefinitely there was a lot of questioning about uh, US military assistance to the Europeans also at the time and creating the dependency culture that we still talk about today in the age of President Trump and the 2% and, and uh, burden sharing. There was a lot of talk in the 1950s about starting a European defence community, uh, which of course now is all the rage again in Brussels uh, as the EU tries to become more self-reliant and advanced defence cooperation. Uh, there have been lots of tensions over the years between Europeans and Americans, a whole litany of disputes on various things. In fact, for me, frankly, Terry, one of the most difficult periods was in the 1990s when Europeans and Americans were on opposite ends of the spectrum regarding Bosnia, you know, to intervene or not intervene on the air, on the ground, to take sides, to do war fighting and peacekeeping. And one of my most dramatic moments occurred in 1994 when uh, US Secretary of State Warren Christopher came here and said, OK, NATO is more important than Bosnia. Now, remember this phrase, NATO is more important than Bosnia. In other words, what he said was that the Clinton administration didn't really agree with UN peacekeeping or the European approach to Bosnia. Um, they would have preferred an air campaign against uh, the Serbs. But... Uh, if the if this was damaging NATO, NATO was a greater asset, the US would change position. And the US changed position. And that led, of course, to uh, the US agreeing to put troops on the ground. It led to the NATO air campaign, the end of the UN peacekeeping mission, and, and Dayton. So the point I'm trying to make is that the key thing is that every ally at the back of their mind, like Warren Christopher on that day in 1994, is prepared to say NATO is more important than Bosnia. That, you know, we have these big issues, but Ultimately, if they're damaging NATO, we're damaging ourselves. Uh, the loss far outweighs any national gain we may have. And at the end, we're going to preserve the unity of the alliance. Now, that mechanism has always kicked in. Well, but uh, and you think President if... Trump is weighing it that way? Because surely his administration taken together believes that, if you throw in Defense Secretary well, Mattis. But, uh, but President Trump doesn't say things like that. Uh, indeed. And I think it's important to obviously look at what he does and not only what he says. But frankly, Terry, and you know, I, I'm not a journalist like you, so 
maybe I don't look at everything that the president says. But what I do see is that there are two sort of sorts of messages. There's on the one hand a sort of a tough love type message, yes, and we had that during the NATO summit on burden sharing and the need to get up to the 2%. But again, burden sharing has been an endless debate in the alliance and the idea of European economic offsets in exchange for US defence, which we're hearing about again today, was uh, a litany of the so-called Mansfield Amendments back in the 1970s. So a lot lot of these issues we've played out before. Uh, But President Trump also says that he believes, and I think sincerely, that this is strengthening NATO. He came back from the trip to Europe claiming that NATO was now stronger, better, because that money was rolling in, those European efforts were were, were coming in, and he's committed to Article 5. So... But, but, you know, he sees this not as a way of weakening NATO, but of strengthening NATO. And that is what he says is his aim, that in other words, the more defence spending you have, uh, the more NATO is going to be able to accomplish its task, the stronger it's going to be. Now, maybe, of course, the tactics... uh, uh, are not what we've been used to uh, in uh, NATO diplomatic circles in, 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 in the past. As I say, tough love rather than soft You're love. You're putting a lot of polish on this. Because well, no, but, got, no I mean, but I'm sure that if you ask President Trump, if you get an exclusive with him after talking to me, um, you know, he, he will actually say that, you know, what he's doing is recognising weaknesses in the alliance from inadequate investment in defence spending. President Trump obviously is is not somebody who, who came to office as a, as a, a NATO expert. And, but he said that publicly. In fact, when he committed to Article 5 publicly um, after the uh, first NATO summit last year, he actually said that you know, what he'd said about NATO before, he said this publicly, was based on an inadequate knowledge or understanding of, of, of NATO. And, and it's true that, of course, uh, uh, European allies uh, are not paying money to the United States. They're paying money to NATO under their uh, assessed uh, uh, contribution. Uh, but, but you know, these may be inaccuracies. For my mind, don't deviate from the fact that if you ask President Trump and members of the administration what he's up to, it's not breaking up NATO, it's, it's strengthening NATO. He honestly believes that, you know, he probably has to use these rather sort of muscular tactics to get the Europeans to focus on an area where they always make promises but often fail to deliver, which is burden sharing. But but surely he sees that he's actually getting, getting results. Okay, that morning when President Trump uh, shouted at the Secretary General across the table about Germany being a captive of Russia and the Secretary General didn't really say much. As a spokesman, if you had to walk out and you had to sort of um, then describe what happened there or, or defend what happened there, what, I mean, is there anything else a, a, sec- a NATO Secretary General can do except basically just listen? Well, first of all, obviously Germany uh, as a major power and, and Chancellor Merkel as one of Europe's most, ex- the world's most experienced leaders uh, is well able to defend itself and I heard Chancellor Merkel at the summit on numerous occasions very much push back against that perception that Germany is dependent upon Russia. Uh, first thing. Number two, uh, what counted, I think, for us at, at this meeting, you know, throughout whatever the rhetoric that's spoken on summit meetings is, you know, what finally have we actually signed up to on a piece of paper? What have we agreed? Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, 
we've read it uh, as a NATO specialist. We've got this very substantive <laughs> communique. We could talk about it in great depth, but it, it, it's got a lot of forward-leaning substantive things in. Uh, my wish would be that, obviously, President Trump, while making his points on burden-sharing, uh, could have also highlighted all of the many other things in the communique, which, from a U.S. perspective, you know, doubling down in Iraq, doubling down in Afghanistan, being tough on Iran, being tough on North Korea, stepping up exactly yeah. the projecting stability in the fight against terrorism, really, really going <laughs> in the vein of what President Trump's been calling for. So I think some recognition for that. Because uh, that slants the press coverage been, also toward those welcome. subjects. It, yeah. Well, but also that was the reality of all the preparatory work that was done in the in the summit. And, and of course, uh, I'm the first person as a, as a communicator, former communicator, to acknowledge that if the rhetoric of an event goes in the same vein as the communicate, that's a bonus. Uh, that's, sure. a, that's a win-win situation. If the rhetoric goes against that a little bit, uh, as leaders bring in other issues, which sometimes they do, by the way, at the NATO summit. I've been at many NATO summits where leaders address every issue except NATO. And I can give you some <laughs> examples because that was on their mind. Obviously, that's not what the Sherpas plan for, but leaders are free to talk about what they like. But as far as NATO is concerned, you know, U.S. signature on the communique before, U.S. signature on the communique after. That's the, <laughs> that's the marching orders. That's the military plan. I mean, that's your orders, you know, not what you heard a general say on the radio. That's the orders that you've received. And so yeah, that's the basis that we're going to uh, 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 proceed uh, upon. And I've heard you comment. I mean, I, I watched um, the event at NATO Engages and they presented a documentary of you. Mm-hmm. And, and you, in typical fashion, proceeded to talk down all the reasons why somebody would want to make a documentary about <laughs> you and said, thank you, everybody, for lying and all of this kind of stuff. You remain so humble after after all these years. But you did change the way NATO communicated. Well, uh, I, I really hope did. I did. Uh, again, no, no false uh, uh, misplaced uh, uh, vanity or orgueil, as the French say, undue pride here. I did my best, yes. I mean, when, when I did come into NATO, it's true that you know, we felt the communication was sort of saying nothing and uh, everything in NATO was a secret and security meant you know, having a public that knew nothing about what was going on. Uh, we were sort of besieged, if you like, uh, uh, by the Cold War and by a sense ourselves that we were unpopular, you know, rather like undertakers. We were necessary, but we didn't expect anybody particularly uh, to love us. And, and I felt, number one, that uh, that was uh, almost delegitimizing NATO, that if you think that, you know, you have to hide from the public or that you're like an undertaker, uh, then uh, obviously there's something almost wrong about your mandate if you're defending NATO's populations, that's a good story, and we should not be ashamed to communicate uh, 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 that. And there were lots of good things going on at NATO, and there would be no damage to open up and actually show the public what we were doing. But I think the real reason, Terry, was that obviously when the Balkan Wars came along, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly Kosovo, uh, we suddenly woke up uh, with a little bit of a surprise to the fact that uh, conflicts uh, generate more opposition than support, that even if you think you're doing the right thing, that's not the way that it's perceived by public opinion. Uh, even conservatives were saying, "My God, Jamie, uh, what's NATO doing bombing a, you know, a, a non-aligned country like uh, Yugoslavia uh, at the end of the 20th century?" Uh, and uh, very quickly, with collateral damage and the campaign not going yeah. as quickly as proceeded, proceeding doubts uh, arose. So there were two types. There were those who basically opposed the operation 
in the first place, or those who supported NATO but thought we weren't doing it in a very competent way and weren't going to succeed. And suddenly there was this sort of you know, yawning sort of realisation that the media campaign was not an optional add-on. It was 50% of the real campaign, that it was not bullets. It may have been airwaves, but you could lose uh, 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 the war through a bad media campaign uh, and so we had to play catch up very very fast uh, and really try to get more professional and that meant obviously restoring the credibility with the media by being more accurate. We never lied but the problem was, was just confirming things just getting accurate information and getting them particularly the military uh, to spend more time gathering evidence uh, which we could then use particularly to sort of fight fake news. It, it existed then nothing new or, 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 or propaganda, uh, the first thing. And secondly, you know, to sort of ask for public patience. This is going to take time, so bear with us uh, by presenting the legitimacy of the operation and a more positive view of NATO. And the lesson was is that, A, take it more seriously and then have a surge capability that you can ramp up during a crisis when the media attention suddenly you know, goes from zero to 100 kilometres an hour in the space of just a day. But at least then people writing stories had editors. You, you, couldn't, you didn't have the internet. So it, it, just anybody couldn't portray themselves as an expert and put out a story that could then be multiplied millions and millions of times like happens today. It's much so, tougher today, there's no doubt yeah, about it. It's yeah, tougher, it's tougher for us too, those people who do have edited stories that look really boring compared to the stuff that's made up on mm. social media. Speaking from trying to pitch stories about real things that are happening, they get covered up or they aren't interesting compared to the stories about the rhetoric. So when, when you think back to that very important turning point in NATO communications, how do you think the how do you think the alliance is is doing today? Everything's relative. If we're improving our public communications, which we are, but then the public, uh, as you say, this sort of the media environment is changing even faster. Then even though we're doing better, we can still fall behind because everything's relative. Are you behind uh, now? Well, no, I don't say we're behind, but I do think that we can draw some lessons from what we see. I mean, the first thing is, is that we need to uh, get everybody behind communication. If, if, every, if, if the individual citizen is now becoming a super communicator through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or social media or whatever, um, uh, and if more and more messages are coming out simply because there are more and more potential actors who, who don't need to go through the kind of the filter of CNN or BBC or the traditional media to get published, to get noticed, they can do it themselves. Answer on our side is we've got to mobilise all of our resources and not just people here on Twitter and, and, and the like to also be pushing out uh, uh, media, but we've got to use the, uh, the NATO alumni network, which I think we don't use by far enough. If, if you go to a university, and I'm going to become a university professor, uh, they spend a lot of their time making sure that all of their former students in their alumni network are tied to the university, are communicating, acting on its behalf, mm -hmm. uh, which gives them reach into virtually every country of the world. And I think at NATO, you know, we've got to do that. We've got a massive sort of substrata uh, of former diplomats, former ambassadors, uh, former military, um, uh, obviously low generations of people who worked in NATO uh, or have had anything to do with it. And we've got to mobilise these in a way that you mobilise white hats, activists in the cyber world against uh, 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 black hats. I think the second thing is that what I've noticed is that people want stories, they want narratives, they want sort of you know, charismatic figures Absolutely. I, I, who, who, who you know, are entertaining 
entertaining, uh, who get their attention, who have interesting angles, who they become familiar with. That's the way it works. It's a conversation now. Mm-hmm. It's not the old top-down lecture, I speak, you listen, as it used uh, to be. Right. You can engage the conversation. You can do it in a kind of relaxed way that can also absorb flack without getting, if you like, defensive or, or irritable or, or, or whatever. And we have to go and find, uh, you know, not just at the level of the Secretary General, who's obviously the principal spokesperson or Awana, the Lungesco, our spokesperson or others, but we need to go out into the NATO organisation and identify who are our charismatic figures, who are the storytellers, who, who are the people who've got, you know, the profile to appeal to uh, the, the Twitter generation and engage that kind of dialogue. And how can we insert them in on areas like women, peace and security? How are we doing in Afghanistan? Uh, you know, what do we mean by cyber defence in this world, whatever NATO is involved in, and get the story across. You know, facts and figures on 2% only get you so far. People want their information wrapped up in interesting stories and narratives. The human factor is is key. Well, again, when you've got, a, a, and I hate to keep coming back to President Trump, but when you've got the president of a country saying negative things, it has an automatic, you know, echo chamber. If, are there cracks now that there weren't before in the transatlantic part of the alliance? It's, it's a good question. Uh, and being optimistic, of course, doesn't mean being complacent. Uh, on the one hand, yes, NATO is strong uh, in terms of having got through many crises and we've made the adjustments. Uh, sometimes crises that have come from the US, sometimes crises came from France, for example, back in the 60s with De Gaulle or, or, or Europe or whatever. Um, and so, you know, being able to sort of ride it out, uh, yeah, sometimes. And not just pretend everything is okay. No, no, certainly not. In fact, even the Secretary General in an interview in the UK recently admitted that, uh, yeah, that he... NATO uh, it, it cannot expect to be eternal uh, if we don't fight for it. It doesn't go on automatic pilot. Yeah, I noticed when we, he started admit, when he started no, saying but, those things. No, but I, you know, in all the years I've been here, what I've observed is that you know we've come through uh, not just by sort of you know, sort of toughing it out, uh, but also through the quality of leadership uh, and 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 the like and taking initiatives. Now, I think that in the case of uh, the burden sharing issue, it's not going to go away. So avoidance is not a strategy. Uh, what I see with President Trump is that when he talks about burden sharing, he gets a lot of support not just from Republicans or his base, but from Democrats as well, uh, from what you call the U.S. strategic community, because you know that clearly is an issue where liberal Americans also feel that the uh, uh, U.S. has been doing too much. Well, even the, the Europeans uh, admit that. Uh, uh, exactly. So, so, so you've got to sort of divide it into, if you like, where uh, clearly the United States has a point and the issue is not going to go away, um, and where also burden sharing is necessary, the 2%, even if Europe is going to do itself, by itself, more for its defence. They're going to need more money, you know, not just to give to NATO, but for their own efforts. So the best thing here is address it head on uh, and just keep, you know, repeating the same messages from our side uh, because if communication is repetition, then we have to do the same, where it says, yes, we agree, we're spending more, we're contributing more, things are going in the right direction, bang, bang, bang. But the the point is is that what if I examine the US and I don't quite claim to be an expert where I see lots and lots of support for burden sharing uh, among you know, broad spectrum of American society, I don't see broad support for getting rid of NATO. In fact, the Senate is now even considering legislation 
to oblige the United no, States no, that's true. to say NATO. And their what I see mm-hmm. is among Republicans and Democrats, that is getting overwhelming uh, uh, support. So uh, I don't take from the burden-sharing debate, Terry, uh, that the, US, uh, the NATO has suddenly hemorrhaged or totally lost the support in the United States or that the consequence of you know difficult burden-sharing debate is suddenly the US wants to turn its back on NATO. Far from it. You... I think there's a real bedrock of support. So to some degree, uh, I think our task is to is, is to sort of separate uh, issues concerning the management of the alliance, like burden sharing, from issues relating to what is fundamental to NATO. Issues like U.S. forces in Europe, fundamental to NATO. NATO's ability to exercise, uh, fundamental to NATO. Uh, NATO's uh, ability, for example, to work with partners and project stability, that's fundamental to our future. This is not sort of, you know, optional. These are the bricks. And also, uh, to my mind, where where I think we need to go is a kind of strategic bargain. Uh, This is an old phrase. I'm not claiming originality, but I think it's true that on the one hand, the Europeans have got to accept that this US pressure is legitimate. They have to do more. And I think they know that. It's just a question of speed and and, and so on. But... uh, but uh, and of course, making sure that when they spend more money, they spend it right. Because you know, spending lots and lots of money on things that NATO doesn't me- need may look good for the two percent, but it's not going to help our posture in Europe. But in return, to convince the United States that greater support for European efforts is also part of the deal, because it's very difficult to be against. Uh, or to be in favour of burden sharing, but to be against the European Union at the same time. Because, look, you know, if you take European defence, 176 weapon systems, you know, vast duplication in R&D, 25 million, billion euros wasted every year on research duplications, according to McKinsey, which did a study for European Parliament. And then it's like you, know, you going out for a couple of beers and pouring your extra beer into a jar where somebody's drilling a holes in the bottom. So that the vast amount of extra input is, is wasted. And so, you know, that's not a viable model. So what and you're saying is the U.S. Can't, should, should tone down the criticism of permanent stru- structured cooperation, PESCO, and things like this. Well, the Europeans, pr- I think, are really assured, the United they States, have, really they, assured, they bent over tried. backwards, yes, to, uh, to say that this is something which, A, is necessary to not just spend more, but to spend smarter, because otherwise... And that it will say, be coordinated. Uh, it's going to be coordinated with NATO, and uh, it will help European defence, but it will help NATO, and uh, given you know the small size of many European defence budgets, unless there's some kind of pooling of of capabilities, you know, framework nations, uh, joint European uh, units, uh, you know, PESCO uh, permanent structured cooperation type projects, um, we're not really going to see the benefits at the end of the day because well, burden sharing is not an end in itself; it's a means yeah. to having more capabilities in in, in the front line. And, and so, yes, I think that's it. And, and there's got to be a kind of respect for the messages of either side and an agreement over a number of years in hopefully a quieter, less dramatic atmosphere. Well, now that we don't have a summit for two years, things can kind of calm down. That we can work, that we we can work towards that kind of of objective clearly. And because I get tired of writing about the 2% stories, I now want to leave that behind because I want to ask you a couple of other things before we go about I mean, about your your, your your long history. What what I mean when I watched this documentary and I remember that you were actually um, you were there with Manfred Werner. Yeah. I mean, um, which were some of the most remarkable times. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were there with Robertson on nine yeah. eleven. Um, I mean, what what to you was the was the most I don't know either either poignant or 
or profound um, moment that you have been here? I mean, if you can even narrow it down, because uh, well, you, few you, people have been here for those. Well, you remember some, some great stories, and, and you hope those great stories also are somehow sort of typical of NATO. In other words, not just colourful sort of stories for, for your own experience, like trips to nice places for <laughs> conferences, but, but stories which also have a meaning for NATO. I mean, for example, one of my greatest memories was in early July 1994, where Manfred Werner, the Secretary General at the time, is critically ill. Mm -hmm. uh, he died uh, a few months later uh, from colon cancer in a hospital in Aachen, Germany. And that morning, for the first time in history, a NATO aircraft on a mission over Bosnia uh, drops a bomb against a uh, Bosnian Serb tank, which had been implicated in actions against UMPRO for the UN force. This was authorised by NATO under close air support, but it was the first time in history that NATO had sort of fired a weapon in anger, albeit under a UN mandate. Um, Werner, who has been ill and away for quite a while, phones me up and says... I want to be on TV because this is a, a great moment. You know, Werner was passionately calling for intervention in Bosnia. It's time for action, he said with his German action, uh, accent, not talking. He phones me up and he says, uh, what can I do? Uh, and he's uh, in hospital? He's in hospital, yes, with <laughs> tubes uh, uh, all through his body, uh, looking as thin as a sparrow. Um, in an intensive care unit. So I said, well, Secretary General, hang on, here we come. Uh, and I got CNN, the BBC, a number of TV stations, and we bundled them into the Secretary General's Mercedes with an escort. Uh, and we drove uh, about 250 kilometres an from hour. From here. From here, true story, <laughs> down the motorway to the clinicum, the hospital in Aachen. Uh, and we worked on Werner, you know, to put the makeup on, to take the tubes out, to put him in a suit. And we disguised his, hotel, uh, his hospital room as a NATO studio with NATO logos and everything. So but just portable So that it looked as if he, exactly, he looked as yeah. if he was coming from uh, NATO headquarters in no Brussels. Way. And he gave a, a great declaration about, you know, the Rubicon was crossed. This was the out-of-area NATO for the first time. NATO intervening in the in Bosnia. NATO standing up, not just for collective defence, but for humanitarian missions. A, a little bit of responsibility to protect uh, 10 years before it became official doctrine. And uh, he was very proud. Uh, and and he died a bit later, but immensely proud that you know, he hadn't missed that day that he'd been calling for. And the journalists uh, never revealed uh, what we'd done, never spoke about the hospital or, or, or whatever, uh, played the game magnificently, I must say. So thank you very much for I'm your not, profession. I'm not and, sure that, that wouldn't And we came today. back at us. No, that maybe not. not. It was today. a slow pace. But it was poignant for me because it was an example of inspired leadership. You know, and Werner, you had worked so hard on the Balkans. It really pushed it you know, to, to persuade the countries that we should cross that Rubicon. It was a decisive moment. It was only a little bomb. But, you know, sometimes uh, acorns... Uh, you know, or oak trees have to start as acorns. Uh, you know, later on, we were in Bosnia in a, a completely different universe of peacekeeping, working with the EU, working for the UN, you know, civil, military reconstruction, uh, protecting civilians, war crimes, uh, trials and excavations. As I said, coming back to an earlier point about how do you get NATO out of a problem, uh, you need really good, inspired leadership. Uh, this is an organisation which really you know, goes from, is led from the front, not from the BBC. Behind. I was just going to tell that my favorite story about Kosovo is when you landed with Yaptohov Skeffer and nobody knew who he was and everybody's like shouting for Jamie Shea and and Yaptohov tells says tells he's like I'm just the Secretary General here following <laughs> along behind Jamie well, Shea. Well, I think yeah, being 
<laughs> Dutchman is also very gracious to me and very modest. But but certainly, probably the greatest moment of my time at NATO was was a bit earlier when uh, I went with Javier Solana and uh, uh, Wes Clark uh, to uh, Kosovo immediately after the air campaign, and uh, we we went for a briefing at the Film City, which had you know rapidly once the Russians occupied the airport, to our surprise, Film oh, City right. rapidly I became remember. the impromptu and of course like the old headquarters permanent uh, NATO HQ in Kosovo after that uh, and um, we were we had the briefings and uh, we looked at our watches um, and um, Solana said well we've, we've got an hour to go before the our plane leaves uh, you've given us the briefings what do we want to do you want to do and uh, the General Jackson said, well, do you fancy sort of just going down into Pristina to have a look around? And, oh, right, let's do that. Let's go and have a look around. You know, this mysterious place that we've been defending for 78 days uh, and the inhabitants that we've been defending without ever hearing from them or seeing them, you know, like a sort of a, a lost planet. So we jump in a few military vehicles, go downtown, you know, nobody's around, get out, walk around, oh, here's Pristina. Next thing, I'm really not joking, hundreds of thousands of, of Kosovars uh, appear, hundreds of thousands, you know, uh, not very well dressed, uh, looking pretty haggard, you know, because they've been uh, keeping their heads down and uh, suddenly recognise us, we recognise them, and it's like a sort of two armies sort of converging each other, and uh, we got completely acclaimed, you know, they, were, they had us up on their shoulders, and they were shouting So that was literally that they had you up on their shoulders? I'm really not joking, and the thing is, it was a total surprise, uh, we, we didn't know that they would recognise us. We did not realise uh, during the air campaign that we were communicating with them. My greatest sort of surprise, thinking that I was talking only to you know, NATO domestic audiences via CNN or the BBC or whatever, was that they were picking up the uh, the, the TV, the radio signals. They were uh, in their cellars in Kosovo. They knew who we were, uh, and uh, you know our messages had sort of been keeping them going. You know, hang on there, NATO is coming. You know, just another day and, and maintaining their morale. And sometimes, you know, the greatest things in life are the things that you just completely didn't realise and were oblivious to and then suddenly sort of like a you know a Mike Tyson punch you know hit you in the in the face and that was a glorious moment and the security went crazy because they totally lost control over us you know we got sort of swept up by the the crowd but it was uh, that it, must have been it was yeah for in terms of uh, life experiences that was absolutely extraordinary well contrast that with fighting in Afghanistan for this long and not really knowing today um if those people are happy NATO came, you know, if those people are happy NATO is still there, if we really have changed their lives for the better in the long run, because things are so murky right now. There is no clear victor, and it certainly hasn't just been 78 days. No, the, in, indeed, and of course the problem with all these things is that it's the end that determines how the whole history is, is seen, and uh, even in the Balkans, let's be honest, you know, we've gone through cycles of being popular, unpopular, as you know, visions of, are we going to be independent? Uh, is Milosevic going to stand power? Twist and turn, you know, in other words, uh, you, it's not a linear thing. You go through different cycles according to whether the local population sees light at the end of the tunnel or darkness at the end of the tunnel, believes in what you're doing, sees progress or doesn't see progress. So I think with the Afghans, you know, the final chapter is still to be written according to in what shape do we leave the 
place in for the future uh, when we uh, uh, go. You know, so so in fact, you know, the German historian said that the historian is a prophet looking backwards, and uh, as you know, history is lived going forwards, but understood written going backwards. So I understand the frustrations of the Afghans, but if we can at least you know bring it at the end to a good conclusion, uh, hopefully they will, will remember us better in retrospect than how is. they experienced us at the uh, at the time. But there's a big difference, obviously, uh, Terry, uh, obviously, between a 78-day very intense sort of drama like Kosovo, which is intense but has a quick ending and a relatively sort of straightforward ending in terms of the departure. Well, none of us knew it would be a 16, 17-year war. No, exactly. And, and, and Afghanistan, which is now you know, longer than World War I and World War II combined and, and could be actually double that combination by the time we have to leave. But again, you know, the, the population will modify its view according to what kind of place we leave at the end. So, unfortunately, I'm going to have to wrap up soon. But as you retire, I mean, why did you have to retire at Rapdas? And, I mean, is there anything you would have liked to do here that you didn't do? You've been through so many positions, so many conflicts, so many successes. I mean, is there anything that you left undone? Well, I, yeah, I mean, lots, obviously, because NATO is a kind of work in progress. And, uh, but you didn't you, have to go. You could have stayed. Nobody no, would could, have argued. No, couldn't. No, couldn't. 65 is still the mandatory retirement age. I think ah. this is this is uh, 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 abhorrent ageism uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, so, so many... So you would have stayed? Yeah, uh, I would, hopefully in a different role. But no, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit frustration, not just missing the, the people uh, who are fantastic and the interesting work, but you know, you're, you're always happy to leave something if everything is going along quietly and smoothly. You know, no clouds on the horizon uh, because sometimes then it can be boring and you think, well, it's time to jump off. But uh, I would, if I could, I would have would, would have stayed simply because uh, my sense is that this is the most challenging period in NATO's history. Uh, we're talking about this. You know, we've got obviously you know, the, the Pressures well, that's on burying Alliance the cohesion. lead, Jamie Shea. Damn it! No, but 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 you know we've got the issues we addressed earlier about mm-hmm. alliance cohesion and how we deal with that. You know the the re balancing between Europe and North America, which is long overdue, and but how to do that in a way that strengthens NATO, not just the individual. Uh, sides of the Atlantic. We've got obviously the, the Russian challenge and the whole business of deterrence. Yeah, and, we didn't uh, even talk about that. No, Imagine. no, no. We've got, you know, the old projecting stability bit, which we touched on briefly. You know, if you look at Africa, for example, by the end of this century, there will be more Africans than Chinese and Indians combined. Um, and uh, only 45% of African arable land will remain productive vis-a-vis today because of the impact of climate change. So enormous challenges. We could talk about this for a long time. And then we've got all the hybrid warfare stuff. So to my mind, uh, this is you know, the most challenging period, but it's also the most exciting in a sort of perverse way almost because it means that you know never before is there more meat to get your claws into uh, as a NATO official. You know, We really need good ideas. We need great leadership. Um, uh, you know, we need to be innovative, and and so I'd love to stay and be part of all of that. You know, but yeah. you're going to be Lord one of Carrington. those white white tweeters yeah. out there now. Well, you're hopefully, have influence yeah, from the outside. I, yeah, I mean, exactly. Lord Carrington, remember, who died a couple of days ago. I, I remember I him. He, he telephoned uh, his successor, Manfred Werner. We spoke about Werner the day after the Berlin Wall fell, and Carrington had told Werner originally that he was leaving because he'd got a bit bored. But then he said to Werner after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, oh, Manfred, if I'd have known, I would have stayed. Uh, And I feel that I know 
that it's going to be exciting. Uh, and therefore, like Carrington, I, I would like to have, uh, uh, have stayed. But yes, of course, I mean, the big challenge for me now, and I suppose lots of other people who leave NATO, is that on the outside, uh, you know, can I still do useful things and have the same uh, ability to contribute meaningfully as I did on the inside? Um, of course, you know, yep. there the, uh, the jury, unfortunately, is still no, out. No, but you're teaching young people to care, right? Well, I've got my students in all key positions. Uh, you know, over the years, I've bored generations of students, but some of them have done a decent thing. And they're now, no joke, in the State Department. They're at NATO headquarters in the delegations. Uh, they're in the CIA. They're in the military. They're all over the show. And uh, uh, hopefully uh, they will also be able to play a role too. Just raising young adults who aren't apathetic, I think, is everything all of us have to have to do. Well, giving them the think? kind of the NATO bug, the security bug, you know, which once... How about got... the journalism bug? Well, you've got that, but no. The journalism bug is also a way of doing it because I'm, I'm the first person to say that, uh, you know, without good journalists who understand and take an interest in these issues, who are uh, constructively critical, uh, a lot of the pressure on this alliance to transform and do the right thing uh, wouldn't happen. I mean, I think the press can take an enormous credit for the way in which it got us involved in the Balkans and out of area and transformation of NATO in the 1990s. Uh, uh, I'm, not sh I'm, I'm not saying without the press it wouldn't have happened, but without the press it, it would have probably happened too little too late. And I think the media these days, particularly in this era of fake news and do-it-yourself uh, journalism, has the, the real media has this immense responsibility also in uh, prodding us but helping also to establish a, a sort of a more objective context for the sort of work we're doing. So uh, you're as much part of the future of the organisation as I was in the past. Well, I'll always be happy to hear from you. I think I w I'm not the only one. Thanks, Thank Terry. you, Jamie. Thanks again. Oh, I can't believe you're leaving. <laughs> always gracious, always entertaining. That's Dr. Jamie Shea, and I'm extremely grateful for his appreciation of the role of the news media, especially in this current political environment. And there's something I forgot to tell in this interview, which I truly regret, because Jamie's so humble it would have been fun to put him on the spot. So during that period we talked about in 1999, when NATO was in all the headlines because of its campaign in the former Yugoslavia, Jamie was named as a sex symbol. That's right, Elle magazine dubbed him the sixth sexiest man on the planet. And that's quite a distinction for someone in the business of explaining NATO. For anyone who knows Jamie, it's really a fun fact. I know I speak for a lot of people when I say Jamie Shea, the unique Jamie Shea, will be ever so missed at NATO headquarters. But I know we'll still be hearing from him, and as importantly, he'll be inspiring younger generations to care about defense policy and practice. So with that, I will thank Jamie Shea for his time, not just in this interview, but in many others over the decades. Again, being seen interviewing him at NATO's Wales Summit was what sparked the creation of this podcast. So it's extra personal for me and special for me to be interviewing him as he leaves. I certainly wish him all the best. And thanks again to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring Channeling Brussels. Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.